we've been uh, going through our study on the book of Acts and you know John got to bring to you like the it's often thought of as the birthday of the church the first you know the first time that the Holy Spirit comes upon the church that way and then all kinds of things happen as a as a result and we're going to start going through this like the the like what are the repercussions where do the you know where do the waves go um you know what you know what happens as the spirit it's okay it's as the spirit spreads um his work through the church but i wanted to go back and just review and make sure that that we're we're kind of understanding where we are because the same themes keep getting repeated again and again um we at the beginning we found the the group of 120 being obedient. We, we saw the 120 focused on God's word. We saw them praying. And we, we saw them united in this. I mean, think about this. This is, this is pretty radical stuff. They just saw Jesus, who they now know is the son of God, and they just saw what the world did with Jesus. What is the world going to do with them? What's going to happen to them? And yet there they are. They're together. They're being obedient. Jesus said, hey, hang out in Jerusalem. Wait, Holy Spirit's coming. They're united. They're empowered. And the reason I want to keep reviewing this is because for 2,000 years, this is still the marks of the church, still the characteristics of the church. It's why you know, we spend time having these times of a, of a sermon, we time Bible studies, we encourage you to read the Bible, to engage in studying the Bible, is because we want to be people of God's word. How, do we, how can we obey God's word if we don't know his word? And so we, we want to maintain that same, that same characteristic of the church. And as we know God's word, we want to be obedient. We want to be obedient in this context. We know we're not living in uh, Jerusalem in, you know, 2,000 years ago. We're living in Honolulu in 2022. What does obedience to God's word look like today? Well, in some ways, it's going to look just like it did 2,000 years ago. But in other ways, it's going to be very different. But there's also this, this, this Holy Spirit coming upon us, this, I, this idea that the Holy Spirit both em, empowers and the Holy Spirit's going to unite this early group, this early church, in a way that they had never been united before. They, they, they had a unity of purpose. They all felt like this is what they needed to do. They needed to be together. But were they ready to, you know, really understand what it meant to be one body in Christ. Holy Spirit's going to help them there. And they don't know. This is, this is one of the things that if you're reading through, um, if you're reading through Acts, it's, it's one of those things, to me, Acts should be the scariest book in the Bible for Christians. A lot of Christians are like, oh, I don't want to study Revelation. Revelation is, you know, it's got all those scary images and it's got those battles and those, you know, you know robots. There's no robots. But, you know, that, that's what they're scared of, right? It's like, no, you shouldn't be scared of Revelation because you know how Revelation ends? We're in the new Jerusalem. In the new heaven, new earth. We're forever in the presence of God. We should be scared of Acts. And I don't think we're scared enough. Because these people don't know what's coming. These people, you know, I think they were ready. They're like, okay, they crucified Jesus. Okay, it may mean our death. And I think they were ready for that. But you know the part that I think might have terrified some of them? And some of them might have said, cannot, impossible, was this understanding that's going to grow in the church that when, when Jesus said, go to all the world, 
and make disciples. He wasn't saying go to all the world and make disciples of traditional Jewish people. Go to the traditional Jewish people, the ones who are you know, religiously following the Jewish faith. Go to them and make disciples out of them. I'm pretty confident that's how they interpreted it. That even in Acts, in chapter 1, when it said that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth, they thought like, yeah, witnesses to those traditional Jewish people. The part that I think would have terrified them at this point is if they had understood that within a few days and then within a few months, a few years, that that church, that one body in Christ would include all of those people that they thought were kind of like, you know, like, I don't know, sellouts, traitors. You know, they were ethnically Jewish. But, you know, maybe they showed up at some of the festivals, but that's it. They didn't follow the faith. You, you wouldn't even know they were Jewish from how they lived their lives. They were just like the Romans, just like the Greeks. And all of a sudden, within just a matter of a few days, they're going to be inundated with those people. And then, not much later, not just those Jewish people who, who okay, you know, yeah, they, they're not getting it right, but at least they're ethnically Jewish. Now it's going to be all those other people, those, those smelly, disgusting, just immoral Gentiles, they're now going to be in my house. I'm going to be expected to go to their house. We're going to have to sometimes, you know, eat the same foods. I'm, their, their kids are going to hang out with my kids. Oh my gosh, my daughter might fall in love with one of their sons. This is coming. This is coming. And for us, we think like, ah, you know, that's a small thing. It wasn't a small thing. It, was, it would have been terrifying to them. They don't know that yet. Oh, they've been told. They just don't understand it. The reason I say Acts should be, should be scary to the church is because what crazy thing is God going to call us to do when the Holy Spirit comes upon our church in a new and a profound way? What people is he going to tell us to go to? What is that group that we find disgusting or that group that, that we think, like, oh, I don't want to associate with them or those, they're so immoral. They can't possibly, you know, be here. Because I guarantee you this, one of the evidences that the Holy Spirit has come in power upon our church is when our church is constantly reaching out and God is pouring in people who are not like us. People that right now we might think are pretty scary or pretty disgusting, pretty immoral. So I say, be afraid. Be very afraid. But I want to share with you this, this, this really important thought, because there's this key thought before we get into the text today. And this, that you know, we've, we've been picking up, and we're going to reinforce it today. This is the importance of the resurrected Christ, belief in the resurrected Christ. The importance is this, belief in the resurrected Christ means that God's church is a supernatural work of God's grace. 
Belief in the resurrected Christ. One of the things we're going to talk about today is that Christianity is is anchored in a belief that goes against everything else that goes on in our world. That God did something supernatural. There is no natural explanation for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was supernatural. And what John talked about last week is that that birth of the church is also supernatural. The Holy Spirit comes upon the church, not because the church deserves it, not because the church has worked its way up to receiving the Spirit, but it's the supernatural work of God's grace. You know, one of the phrases I, de- I, I, I'm, I thought I made it up, and maybe I didn't, but, you know, it popped in my brain before I actually heard anybody else say it, is this phrase I, I call the tyranny of ambiguity. The tyranny of ambiguity. You, you may not have ever known that phrase, but I can almost guarantee you, you've, you've experienced it. Ambiguity means like when somebody says something that can have multiple meanings. And if you've ever had the boss or the teacher who is ambiguous, then what do they get to do later on? Well, when there's multiple meanings, they get to choose. And they don't have to stay on one meaning. I've worked for people like this and it's... it's it's crazy and it's scary. And sometimes they don't even realize the power they have in being ambiguous. They're just ambiguous. But it's a, it's, it's like, it's a, it's a terrible thing, you know. But again, people find power in that. And I think that's one of the things about our world that people like. People want... You know, they, they, they like great ideas. They want great ideas. But they don't really want specific details. They love great ideas. You know, they, they love people to give them general advice. But they don't want to tell, they won't want somebody to tell them step by step specifically what they should do. Why? Well, because... If it's a general idea, it's somewhat more in the world of ambiguous, and I can kind of make it mean whatever I want to make it mean. But when you start getting overly detailed, when you start getting overly specific, oh, that's a problem. You see, there are some people who consider themselves Christians that believe in the resurrection, but they don't believe the resurrection actually took place. What? Let me repeat that. They believe in the resurrection, but they don't believe the resurrection actually took place. They like the idea of the re- resurrection. They like the idea that, 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 that the early Christians just thought Jesus was so awesome and Jesus was so powerful and his teaching was so great that, you know, to help talk about why his ideas deserve to be, you know, lived and died for. You know, they, 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 they use the language of resurrection. And you can imagine, if they, if they say resurrection is a general idea, the idea that I can make it mean whatever I want it to mean, guess what? They can do that with anything else in the Bible. And that's why you find people that, that, that treat the Bible like a book of good ideas. Now let me tell you, the Bible is a book of good ideas, but it's more than a book of good ideas. The people who think the Bible is only a book of good ideas, you know, they, they're like, let's just leave all those details out. In fact, they would probably prefer a modified Bible 
that didn't have all these words, but maybe just had maybe 10 pages, and on each one of the pages had a really good, deep thought for each day to kind of give you some general philosophy, general advice on how to live. They don't want the details. They like the idea of Christianity. They like the idea that Christianity talks about love and faith and hope, but they don't want the details. We live in the details. The details matter. One of the reasons we go verse by verse through the Bible, one of the reasons we are committed to preaching through God's word and studying God's word is because the details matter. Now, some of you might find it more entertaining if I just got up here and, you know, this was basically Sunday mornings was wonderful words of wisdom from Matt. My wife probably wouldn't like it because, you know, she gets it 24 hours a day, seven days a week, so it'd just be redundant for her. But some people might like that. Some people are attracted to that kind of like a teaching kind of. And of course, I would be sure because we're in a church to sprinkle a little Bible in now and then because, you know, it's important. But we don't do that. We don't do it because the details matter. And so we want to study. We want to look at these details. And so we always talk about context. We always review. We always try to move forward. And so where does this text live today? Well, we just saw the Holy Spirit has come upon that, those 120, empowered the church, did it in such a way that, that it got people's attention in Jerusalem, thousands of people. And Peter uses that opportunity to preach. He's about to preach. I want you to understand this. If the Holy Spirit could come upon this church, come upon this 120, and cause them to go out and to boldly proclaim God's word and not just do that, do it in a miraculous way, in a way that that people could understand it in their own languages, in their own dialects. Why didn't the Holy Spirit just change all the people who are listening? Why didn't the Holy Spirit just change everybody in Jerusalem from Pontius Pilate, you know, to Caiaphas, the high priest? Why didn't he do it? You know, sometimes the way people, when they, when they start hearing about, oh, Holy Spirit coming upon the church, they almost feel like there's, there's magic to it. It's not about magic. If it was about magic, God could just snap his fingers and everybody would change. All right. The Holy Spirit empowers the church. The church goes out and does. And in this case, preaches, proclaims, witnesses. And so as we look at this today, we're going to look at this in there's two big pieces. One is what God has done for his church. And that's what we're going to look at at the beginning. And the second part we're going to look at is what our response should be. So in chapter 2, verse 14, it says this, But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. It would have been like maybe 9 a.m. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. 
And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you want to like dig a little deeper in some of these details, there's, you know, there's, some, there's some phrases and some you know, things there that you're like, oh, I wish we could know more about that. Well, you know what? Come on Wednesday nights. That's what Wednesday nights are for. But this morning, I want to just take some, you know, broad strokes here of what God has done for the church. The first one is, is what Peter's preaching what he's talking about is what they just saw. They just saw this sign. They just saw this miraculous sign. And the sign was that God has poured out his spirit. What God has done for the church is God has poured out his spirit on the church. Again, that was the focus on last week's message. And I don't want to re-preach last week's message, but let me just make sure you understand that what this says is, from the, from the prophet Joel, it says, I will pour out, pour out my spirit. There is abundance. You might even argue there's an overabundance. It's not a trickle. It's not an eyedropper. It's the Holy Spirit coming upon the church and it's evident. I got in a habit from when I was at, when I used to go to the University of Hawaii of never carrying an umbrella. I don't know why. I just don't. And, you know, partly because like, it was an extra thing to carry and because, you know, in Hawaii it rains all the time. So I'd always have to carry it. Even when we moved to Scotland and we lived in Scotland, didn't carry an umbrella. Part of it was same reason. It rains off and on all the time there. And on, in addition to it, the wind blows and the wind will destroy your umbrella. If you go to the thrift shops, tip, if you go to the thrift shops in, in Scotland, don't buy the umbrellas there, because they have all been at one point inverted by the wind. That's why they're there. <laughs> they donated them to charity. Um, but you know what? If, if, if I came in and it had just been drizzling, like it often did in Scotland and in Manoa, I might get in class and no one could tell. But if it was pouring, and I remember one, one day in particular, I had, I, used, I had a Japanese class at like 8 in the morning, and I, would, I had to walk from, our apartment was over by Chaminade, and I walked to UH Manoa, and it just started pouring, and pouring, and pouring, and pouring. I'm pretty sure everybody in class knew it was pouring when I walked in. Because as much as I tried to squeeze out as much water as I could, it was very evident it was pouring. If God is pouring out his spirit on this church, if God is pouring out his spirit throughout the church and around the world, it should look like we are drenched in the spirit. It shouldn't look like it's just a drizzle. The second thing, Peter is quoting from the prophet Joel. He's quoting from, from the scriptures that were written. It depends on, you know, you know who you think um, is right about when Joel prophesied, but it's at minimum 400 years maximum 600 years earlier. And one of the things about prophecy, and that when we see prophecy in God's word, you know, we get all 
fixated on, oh, is it being fulfilled, or when is it being fulfilled, or how is it being fulfilled? Yeah, those are all important things. But here's, the, to me, the most important thing. God's not making this up as he goes along. If it was prophesied 500, 600 years ago, God's not making it up as he goes along. God isn't going like, man, wow, we, Malachi just finished his work. He just wrote, I got nothing. I don't know what to do with these, these humans. I got nothing. And then 400 years later, oh, you know what? I could send my son. Oh, you know what? I, we, we can get a group together. And oh, you know what? Uh, maybe spirit go down. That, just try that. See how it works. No. It's prophecy. It's always been his plan. The church isn't a new thing. I mean, it is a new thing, but it's not a new thing to God. It's always been the plan. This was always how it was supposed to play, play out. Even when he starts talking about when the Spirit comes, you know, your daughters, your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men shall see visions, your old men shall dream dreams. Even that. This isn't new stuff. This isn't new stuff. It's not new to God. It may be new to us, or maybe we just didn't see it when God said it earlier, when Jesus said it how many times during his ministry. But there's going to be a manifestation of the Spirit that we will be able to know things from God just like they knew these languages that they had never learned. They're going to know things from God. They're going to have insights from God that don't come through the normal ways that happens. It's the Holy Spirit. Even when it talks about the day of the Lord, and it's so easy to get sidetracked when you see the day of the Lord language in Scripture. I'm not going to do that today. But even when you see that, it's this idea that this is a plan. God has a plan. He has established a plan from before the foundations of the world. When we were going through our series at the end of 2021, remember it all began with creation wasn't God's plan. Creation was part of God's plan. God wasn't trying to create a universe. He was trying to create a kingdom. And creation of the universe was a step along the way. Don't confuse step one with the destination. It's always been his plan. So what has God done? He's poured out his spirit. What has God done? He's established his plan. It's not random. It's not new to God. And Peter is making that connection because most of the people listening to him, they're going to have some familiarity with the Hebrew scriptures. We presume most of them are, are ethnically Jewish. And it could be a mix. But if they're there, and we believe there's a lot of the ones who've come from, from different parts of the empire are there as, you know, to observe festival, time of Pentecost, then they're at least somewhat of a traditional Jewish person. They would have known. And he's making that case for them. This isn't new. And then in verse 22, I'm not going to read this whole section. I'm just going to read a couple of the verses at the beginning. Peter continues, says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. 
What is the third thing God has done for the church? He sent Jesus. He sent his son. And we crucified him, and God resurrected him. There's so much that we could talk about, about the resurrection. But understand, it has this twofold meaning. It has this idea that, that there's this victory over death. Death is, is final to us, but it's not final to God. Death is God's servant. God is sovereign. That's why as Christians we don't, we don't fear death. Not in the way that the world fears death. It's victory over death. But the resurrection also represents the new life that we have in Christ. What's happening to the 120 here all at once is going to happen a couple of more times in this way, but what happens in the, as time passes, as we get from the birth of the church and we get to the more mature church along the way, is that, is that this happens to each of us. That when we become, when we become believers in Christ, there is new life and the resurrection is, is the demonstration of that. Sometimes, you know, the Bible will tell us it's the same resurrection power that now lives in you. And there's so much more we could talk about the significance of the resurrection, but I just want to focus on this one thing because, because Peter is proclaiming this, and he's proclaiming it here in the first ever sermon. And I, and, and I think in our modern times, what I told you earlier is, is one of the threats. That, that we like the idea of the resurrection, but we don't like, you know, the general specifics, like it actually really happened. That there's a lot of people who are like that. A lot of people who consider themselves Christians are like that. But understand, this resurrection that Peter's talking about, when Peter talks about it here, it had happened less than two months earlier. When Peter's talking about it here, there, all the others who are standing with him, they'll all say, yeah, we saw the resurrected Jesus. What Paul will later write is like, Jesus appeared to over 500 people. The people who are there, those who are in Jerusalem, they're going to remember, yeah, you know, I remember, they crucified that Jesus guy. They may not know why and all of that, but they know he died. They could check it out. Peter's saying something that could be pretty easily refuted. From the very beginning, they're not talking about the resurrection as a general idea. As He's not talking about Jesus, the great martyr who, who died believing you know, what, he, what was, was true. He so inspired us. Let's resurrect him by living according to his ideals. That could have been the first sermon. But that wasn't the first sermon. First sermon was right there in the center of it is the resurrection. God did something in history, something that wasn't natural. He did the supernatural. I want us to get this though. I want us to understand that it's more than just saying, Oh, I believe in something supernatural. It's more than that, okay? It's more than just standing against a naturalistic world, a world that's increasingly saying this is all there is 
oh, we can find other mysteries, but you know, they're you know, in the subatomic world, or they're way out in space, or deep down in the ocean. But really, the natural world is all there is. Natural process is all there is. It's not simply saying, no, no it's not, there's more. It's more than that. The supernatural, the resurrection, God intervening in history is tied to grace. What does grace presume? Grace presumes not only that we, that we don't deserve salvation. Grace presumes that we cannot save ourselves. It is impossible. Christianity states up front, it is impossible. You cannot meet God's standards. I don't care how you break down what Christianity is. If it's just simply trying to, to you know, achieve some level of righteousness, some level of morality, Christianity says up front, you cannot, it is impossible. You need something supernatural to happen. It has to come from God. That is God's grace. How else can you believe in grace? If you don't believe that God can and has and continues to intervene in this world in a supernatural way, you don't really believe in grace. You believe in some kind of human goodness that's just got Christian words attached to it. The resurrection, God intervening supernaturally, it's because God must intervene. If he does not intervene, there is no salvation, there is no church, there is no grace. To leave behind the supernatural, to leave that behind, Christianity just becomes humanism in biblical language. Humanism with Christian ideals. And most of you guys know me, and I don't, I, I guess I always feel I have to say this. I still will tell you when God acts supernaturally in the big, obvious ways. It's the exception. The Bible is not full of God every single day, you know, doing something. Healing people, you know, parting bodies of water, you know, bringing food down, water. He doesn't, he's not doing that every day. Even Jesus. Jesus didn't just, you know, heal everybody all the time. There's a point, a purpose to his interventions. But once we close the door on the supernatural, we lose grace. It will never, it'll never be a gospel of grace if God cannot intervene. And this is the big point when it comes to the resurrection. And then when we see the Holy Spirit coming upon the church, God is doing something we cannot do without him. In fact, without him, left on our own, what, what has human history shown us when, when hum, humanity tries to do things on its own? It's just, you change the names, you change the places, but it's the same old story. Power, struggling with power, conflict, you know, people wanting the same things, the same resources, people wanting to be in control. And if you don't have that, you have some level of, of anarchy and chaos. So we're, we're left either to find some really powerful, you know, force, government, or, or, you know, ruler, or something that controls us, 
and makes us play nice or we just break apart, atomize. Read history. Yeah, there's a part of history that that's, seems wonderful, this development of civilization. But do we treat each other as nations any better? And for any different purpose than has been going on ever since there have been city-states and nations? What God, is, what God is doing in establishing his kingdom, we cannot do without him. We cannot just take his Bible and try to live by it and somehow the kingdom will develop. We need his supernatural intervention. Only by his grace. And it says this, and we're going to jump down to 37. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, of the apostles Brother, what, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. There's a whole other story of what happens when you go from 120 to 3,000. You know, I told you why you should be terrified when you read the book of Acts, you know, what the Holy Spirit's going to do. You know, I wonder if they were sitting around thinking like, you know, when we finally when we start going out, you know, what do you think our growth projection should be? What is the managed growth we can handle? And they might have gone, you know, we've got 120. Like, maybe we could do like add 5, 10, 15 a month. And then, you know, after a year we'll be up to, you know, you know we'll be even moving up there, get a couple hundred. What if somehow God had sent a secret message and said, by this time tomorrow, there will be 3,000 brand new believers hungering after God's word, wanting to know what's next, begging to be led. What are you going to do? But what I want to focus on here is, is not the the logistical issues that they would have faced. But what we must do, we just talked about what God does, what we must do. Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. We talked about repentance a few weeks ago, and I just want to tell you again, repentance doesn't just mean turning from your sin. If repentance means turning from your sin, well, you could turn a whole bunch of other ways. But repentance means turning from your sin and turning toward Jesus and following Jesus. It's not enough just to turn from your sin. You have to turn toward Jesus and follow Jesus. That's the idea of being baptized in the name of Jesus. Being baptized, being now identified with Jesus. And remember, this is the Jesus that just a month and a half ago was executed as a criminal. And now you're being baptized in his name. You're, you're identifying yourself with that criminal. You're placing yourself under the authority of that criminal. The Romans had one job. Pontius Pilate had one job. Keep the peace. Keep the peace. Do you understand the risk and the danger now in a city that probably only had about 30 or 40,000 people at the time, but in that city of about 30 or 40,000 people, 
one-tenth of them are now following the guy that got executed. Any sensible leader would go, oh no, this is bad. Any sensible person would be like, do I really want to associate with those guys? But they do. 3,000 do. They repent. They're baptized. And that's what we're called to do. Repent. Turn from the way the world operates. Turn toward Jesus. Follow Jesus. Live in his authority. Under his authority. Be people of his word. The second thing he says there is, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the idea. Receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And I'm going to tell you, the Holy Spirit, what we find even in Acts, the Holy Spirit doesn't come upon everybody exactly the same way. But you, as I said before, you will know. You will know because the Holy Spirit is poured out. Something will be different, and you will notice. Oh, for some people, they were so much not like Christ that just a little bit like Christ is a big difference. Maybe that was you. But there's other people like, it's, it's, you know, they were, you know, kind of generally good people. They're generally kind of moral. And, and the outward change, it's, it's not going to be as noticeable. Make no mistake, the repentance, the baptism, important, but with the receiving of the Holy Spirit. And everybody thinks like, oh, you know, and I've had this question, and I've asked this question since I was, you know, in, in high school and everything else, and I hear this question all the time, that, that's like, oh, you know, they, they want to know like, oh, what are my gifts of the Spirit? Or, or how does the you know, you know, the Holy Spirit, you know, what is he going to, you know, what is he going to empower me to do? And I'm not going to tell you that there are not a lot of, like, individual situations where a lot of things can happen, but let me tell you this. When you receive the Holy Spirit, the undeniable evidence, the evidence that every single believer should have, evidence of the Holy Spirit, is what Paul writes about in Romans 5, where he says, the Holy Spirit pours out God's love in your life. To me, the evidence of the Holy Spirit is the presence of God's love in my life that was not there before, that's not just received, but that overflows. And it goes out. It's going to look different depending on who we're talking about, you know, you know, situations that we're in. But there is something that now is there inside of you that just cannot help but love because it's your nature to love. That's why I tell you acts should be terrifying because when God's love gets a hold of your life, you don't know where and who and how he's going to use that love. You don't know. And the third thing they do here, the, the 120 did it, and then Peter does it here. You proclaim, you proclaim the risen Lord. You proclaim the crucified and risen Lord. And this, this was the task given to the church. We read about it at the end of Matthew we read about it at the beginning of Acts. And they don't know it yet. But this is a global task for all time to all people. 
It's the importance of the resurrected Christ. But that's connected to the power of the Spirit and the purpose of the Spirit in our lives. The secret to church growth, secret to church growth, receive the Spirit, live in the Spirit, proclaim the resurrected Christ. Rinse and repeat. Keep doing it. Receive the Spirit, live in the Spirit, proclaim Jesus Christ. As more people come in, as more believers come in, they're receiving the Spirit, they're now joining those living in the Spirit, they're joining those proclaiming Jesus Christ. Oh, you can grow numerically in a lot of other ways, in a lot of other ways. You know, you can probably find like metrics on church growth and probably one of the reasons like our church isn't as big as some other churches is because we still serve Folgers coffee. Um, we haven't gotten to gourmet coffee level and you know, maybe when we do, you know, a lot more people will come. You can grow a church a lot of different ways. But if we're not, remember, we're not interested in being a church. We're not interested in growing a church. We want to know what it means to become his church. His church is gripped, saturated with the Holy Spirit. And it's evident in how we live. It's evident in how we love. In a sense, we're believing in the supernatural, the resurrection, and we're living the supernatural. The Holy Spirit empowering and enabling us to do far more than what we can do on our own. Don't receive the Spirit and then limit His work in your life. Don't take the pouring out and reduce it to a trickle because you're afraid of what will happen when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you. That's my question. If God is pouring out His Spirit, why does it seem like it's only a trickle? If we want to become His church, we have to have less of an obsession with being comfortable and safe. We have to have less of an of a obsession with trying to stabilize. When the Spirit gets a hold of us, then God's love gets a hold of us. God's love makes us bolder. God's love makes us more willing to take risks. The Holy Spirit will test us. The Holy Spirit will push us. will challenge us. Becoming his church. You might go, well, I'm not ready for that. Do you think these guys are ready? You think they were ready to go from 120 who just a few weeks earlier were terrified and hiding, and now all of a sudden there are 3,000 people. You think they're ready? They aren't ready. Didn't matter. They were going to go wherever the Spirit led. If we're going to become his church, that's the question we have to confront. Are we willing to go wherever he leads? 